Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to entertain myself, learn something, and meet new friends. And that's why I'm so excited this evening to introduce you to Sharon May Davis. Um, I've known of her for quite a while, and I've known of her work for a while. And um, I'm just really excited to listen and learn from her this evening. And I'm sure you're going to find it uh, very educational and informative. So grab your drink, pull up your Zoom, and let's get into it. So hi, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Well, thank you for the invitation, Wendy. It, uh, sorry it's taken so long to get here, but... You know, That's good okay. Things good things sometimes take time, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, so Sharon, um, I always ask my guests to give us a little background about how they wound up doing what they're doing, but I think you have that in your, in your presentation. I actually do. I give people a little bit of an insight into the type of person I am. I realize that with Zoom, you don't sign a clause whereby you have to laugh at every joke that I make or I think is funny. Um, I have a bit of a warped and weird personality. That usually goes as a precursor, so people can be warned that, oh, oh here she comes. She thinks it's funny. Thank goodness she can't see us because we don't get it. <laughs> so I do have a little bit of a sense of humour that's quite Aussie, but also I'm very much inclined to be um, a punner. But, yeah, definitely my curiosity started when I was a child, and I'll, I can take you through that. Yeah, so love it. Start to share the screen now and bring people forward onto um, that part of the talk. Yep. All right, let's share this screen. And here we go. Let's see now. Right, can you see me, Wendy? It's coming up. There we go. Got it. Okay, good. All right, folks. Well, look, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction to the topic very briefly. I did get an indication that I was allowed to go over one hour. I apologise already because I know I will. And I will answer as many questions as I can and be as close to the mark as possible. And if I can't answer it, I'll be honest to tell you I can't answer it. But equine, equine complex vertebral malformation is the topic tonight. In your place, it's tonight. It's my, in here, it's morning. So yeah. just for those who aren't aware... My first coffee for the day. Here we go. That's an essential part of every day is that first cup of coffee. <laughs> well, I actually water and I, yeah, that's my first coffee for the day. Even though it's only 10 a.m. here, I still haven't had my coffee. But either way, I'm going to introduce you to a horse that I met, Mr. T, back in the UK in an area called Devon. And this is an Irish sport horse. Now, those people that can jump or jump horses, I, well, I can't jump anymore, but... Um, have a look at the way he's about to land. Have a look at the head position. Have a look at his eye. Have a look at his ears. This horse is worried, and that is not a high jump, and he's only five. So you know that he's not going to land correctly. You know his hind end isn't 100% even behind, but that's a little bit forgivable in young horse. The fact is, he's not even looking where he's going or lowering his head. And unfortunately, he was on the table at the age of five. So we're going to come back to why he is part of this journey as well. But to understand how I got to this point, I'm going to introduce you to, hmm, I was going to introduce you. Let's try again. Sometimes it's just a question. There you go. Yeah, here we go. As your guest speaker, some of you may be familiar with my work or may be unfamiliar. However, here I am at Rotterdam. This is in the Museum of Natural History and I'm doing some research. Now I don't know if we have the icon. This is not me ironing out the bones. This is a 3D archaeological scanner. I would love to take all these bones home with me out of the museum but I'm afraid that I've only gone through the airport several times in my life with a suitcase full of bones 
and had one interesting experience in Japan where it all got pulled up and looked at and looked at me very carefully. However, having said that, this is the camera. This is an archaeological 3D scanner and I'm researching dorsal spines and metacarpals and metatarsals throughout the areas of museums or areas in the world of museums, including America, where I was studying these um, bony portions for various reasons and it'll come out in future papers. Some of them are already being published now. So I was born in 1959. I was always a curious child. I was forever picking up things and asking, what is that? And here I am, obviously still in nappies. So I'm around the age of two because I'm walking. And that is really quite a position that I seem to hold a lot in my life. Because when you're looking at bones and starting to look at bones, you actually have to dig a lot when people aren't available to offer them to you uh, post-mortem. And that's how my early part of investigating the osteology or the bones of horses began, and especially their skeletons. So here we go. My first memory was as a child at about the age of three to four and I was woken up in bed and said you want to come out with the horses now we didn't have horses uh, and for those people that really know me they know that my father was uh, had had horses but I didn't know because well I was one of seven that we know of so <laughs> thinking about that you know I was just this person this little child between I was number five of out of seven that we know and he said, do you want to come and see the horses? So I got my little blankie, which is covered around me. And all I remember are mists and giants in the mist. And it was foggy. Now, my older brothers, some half and some not so half, said to me, oh, that's when you were well, three. And that's before things really changed in our family dynamics. And, yeah, dad would have had trotters. And he would have taken you out one morning to where the trotters were, where he had them in the stable, which I knew nothing about. And so that was my first encounter. So I continued in this little journey of understanding horses a little bit and they found me riding horses at the age of four, uh, not our horses, someone else's horses, just took off into a paddock and began riding horses, climbed their legs and these were actually bush horses so we didn't even know if they were dangerous. They were dangerous to my brothers but the gentle giants that I remembered in the mist looked after me in the bush and let me get on their back and I thought I was riding but all I was was sitting on their back and grazing. So my brothers watched me do this and they said I used to hook my big toe over their elbow, climb up, climb up the leg, hook my big toe over the elbow, pull on the mane and get myself on their back. Wow. My memories are riding horses at the age of four. No saddle, no bridle, no safety mechanisms. <laughs> no parental guidance, by the way. <laughs> so that happened right up until the age of 14 where I was still riding horses that we didn't... Uh, didn't own, and I actually met the people that I call mum and dad now, who I referred to a moment ago to you, Wendy. So here I am, paddock bashing at the age of 14, very elegant rider with occupational health and safety attire. You can tell by the helmet, you can tell by the gloves, you can tell by the safety vest, and look at those wonderful toes. You know, I could cut any bush at any height with those toes. And here I am riding a racehorse off the track. She's an oldie, but she's a sweetie, and she looked after me. So mum and dad took me in, the people I call mum and dad took me in, and they said, what do you want to do with your life? Oh, of course, what do I want to do? I badgered them to let me ride their horses, and of course they did, and they then said, do you want to become competitive? By the time I was 20, I was very competitive, and I was winning at what we call minor royal level, which is right up to a national standard, and here is a homebred thoroughbred, so we actually bred this horse, and we'd won 
a couple of events and seconds and thirds. And this horse was truly amazing. He was just like a typical redhead. We won at that Royal. The following weekend, we were bucking out of the ring at another show. So she had a wonderful temperament that taught me to ride and hang on really quickly. Um, the thing about this mare is you might notice my legs are very forward and that's because you couldn't put your legs on her. <laughs> you put your legs on her and we were going. She was a typical racehorse that was sensitive to your legs, but she wasn't a racehorse because she was homebred specific for me to ride. Anyway, just from that perspective, it taught me that you can have the quieter racehorse and the one that isn't racing, that obviously is a thoroughbred, that is a little bit more sensitive. So my legs had to change again. Anyway, moving on from that, by the time I was 32, I was a mother of two. And for those people that have children, your children get to take what they call a show and tell specimen or, you know, something they've done at home or something they want to show the world. Well, my kids wield in one of the skeletons I'd built, you know, and you can see my two children here, Matt on the left and Katie on the right, and they're presenting for the first time an Australian stock horse called Mouse that I'd built. And the kids behind had no idea about the horses. They all thought it was a dinosaur I dug up. So I'd actually dug up these bones, put them together, and got it to the school where my children had a show and tell. Unbeknownst to me how silly I was, I didn't give a talk beforehand. It was all to do with my children. And their memories of what happened about these bones are totally different to mine. And from their perspective, I burnt down the place. <laughs> I just I had the fire brigade everywhere. Mum wouldn't let me in the house because I smelled. And um, they were very suspicious what was cooking on the stove. And they've been so ever since. So very unique journeys with my children. Moving on to 42, I've actually built more skeletons. I've become quite the academic because after having them, riding wasn't such a big obsession as was rehabilitation. And so following you know, after my first uh, entry into university and, and one year's worth of uh, advanced certification horse management, I then became quite the academic and realised that what we were teaching and what we were lecturing about was not accurate to the books. I was finding different variations to the equine skeleton that we weren't being presented as normal morphology in the horse. So for argument's sake, you know, the thoracic vertebra can be anywhere between 17 to 19 or half thereof because of a what we call a transitional vertebra. And this goes on. So I became quite the academic and began putting together information and going on to my master's and publishing. By the time I was 54, here I am with Stefania Vermoulin from Equine Studies. Now, obviously, I've been inside and dissecting a horse because I've been dissecting for 25 years. I've got veterinarians around me I'm lecturing to and I'm taking through a number of people and we've got inside the probe. So you can see here the computer, I've got a probe inside. Sfonia's going in, I'm teaching her where to palpate and how to palpate, uh, the internal organs for leading into the dissection. <laughs> and lo and behold, I didn't realise that I'm rubbing my dirty bloody hands on the back of her jacket. So yeah, my... <laughs> My introduction is just get, get in there, get it done and enjoy it and, and enjoy the palpation and journey. So I'd been not only rehabilitating and managing horses, but I actually had managed horses right up to this level to the point where they'd gone to the Olympics and uh, represented Australia at various levels in various disciplines. So I was not only a therapist and rehabilitator, but I was an academic at the same time, bringing from the table, from the dissection table to the living horse. And that's where I made the biggest differences to the living horse was when I understood what was going on inside. So nothing's changed. I'm still head down, backside sticking up and still curious at 60. Here I am at the Japanese museum measuring metacarpals and 
why would people take a picture of that? I have no idea. But for comparative anatomy, my butt was bigger than the horse because this is a Przewalski. So understanding that kind of curiosity, I haven't changed. I'm still curious. And up until this point where I'm presenting this webinar, I actually was writing about those dorsal spines. I was scanning at Rotterdam Natural History Museum. I was actually writing about them this morning. So I do come to America and I come to America mostly to look at your museums and specimens. So I find that an interesting journey as well, because of course, a lot of you, as you would know, the horses evolved there. So from that point, let's get back to equine complex vertebral malformation. So this is the title, equine complex vertebral malformation. In the beginning, I used to refer to this as the congenital malformation of the sixth and seventh cervical vertebra. But as it continued on and with consultation with the University of New England and the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organization here in Australia, I changed that. It was more complex than just two vertebrae. It involved neurological, uh, neurological, so the nerves. It involved the first and second sternal ribs. It involved morphology beyond what I understood, including the, the musculature. And so looking into literature, I came across some research that talked about complex vertebral malformation. And from that point on, I sent a letter to the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science there in Kentucky. And they responded with, we've got your letter, we will then recommend you call it that from this point on, hence the name. But I'm going to take you onto a journey as to why it appeared that name. Why did we get to this name? It was first found in the Holstein dairy cars late last century. And what it was, the Danish authors, Anker Holm, Bendixson, Andersen and Jürgen, they actually had a what we call a lethal genetic component in Holstein dairy cattle. And these, these calves were born and very, very little lifespan of maybe two days and often aborted preterm. They were born with a congenital malformation of the cervicothoracic junction here. When you're looking at it, you can see malformations here and rib malformations of these calves, double heads and variations of C6, C7, first thoracic, and these strange looking ribs, these fused ribs or misshapen all. It, it went on to the, well, okay, this is what I'm seeing in horses. When you looked at the vertebra after all the you know, um, musculature has been removed, this is C6 here, and you can see weird double-headed ribs or weird flared ribs or weird half vertebra or misshapen vertebra. And that's where it occurred in these Holstein cattle, in the cervicothoracic junction, which is exactly where it occurs in horses. But how did it get to in Japan and Australia and all around Europe and America? And it came about through artificial insemination. So the Holstein cattle, this, this morphological variation was genetic and it not only was a um, issue in the dairy industry, but with the death of so many calves, they didn't have breeding stock to continue with. So after the talks, we decided that we put just a prefix in front of it called equine complex vertebral malformation. And that's because it wasn't too dissimilar to what we found in the Holstein calves, and it was in the same anatomic region. So, 
So just just so I understand this. So this was first seen in cattle. What what years? I, sorry, what years were those that they started seeing it? Late last century. And oh right. And so and when did they start doing artificial insemination with cattle? That's been going on oh. for a long time. In actual fact, it was going on from uh, 60s, 70s in the cattle side of it. So the artificial insemination, it became worldwide, this complex vertebral malformation in Holstein cattle became completely um, a global, like a pandemic, because of the artificial insemination programs of sending very good bull semen out of America, Penn State Star. So, oh. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but you took me there. That's okay. That's all right. You know, because I mean, that's the thing is it's because of things like artificial insemination, you can have something like this and not know about it until well down the road because it's transportation so easy. So this is why we think that equine complex vertebral malformation has become so prolific in multiple breeding programs in this century. Because of the artificial insemination that we're doing with horses. And especially warm bloods. Ah, yeah, yeah. because thoroughbreds, at least in the United States, uh, you can't use artificial insemination. But they have shuttle stallions. So when the shuttle stallions would arrive in Australia, out, out of Japan or out of Europe or out of the UK or out of America, they were serving every six hours. You know, not much of a breather for some of those poor fellas. Some of the, no wonder some of them died early. They couldn't handle the load. So, I've never heard this term, shuttle stallion. It basically means they're just shuttling those stallion around to breed as many horses as possible. Wow. So when you have the breeding season in America, it's gone into winter and there's no mares that are willing to be served because of the, the estrus behaviours, uh, the physiology uh, associated with that. They shuttle them off to Australia and other places in the Southern Hemisphere that will take on breeding stallions. And so we have what we call shuttle stallions. They shuttle them in and then they send them back for the breeding season in America or the UK or Europe. So that's wow. why we have, that's why this particular condition, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, is, is worldwide. It's like a pandemic. We've got so many locations around the world where it's been identified, not just in thoroughbreds, but of course in other breeds. Um, and are there yeah. any breeds where you have not seen it? Yes. Oh, okay. I'm sure you'll talk about that later. Oh, well, actually, if you ask me later, I'll, I'll certainly remember to talk or about or it. Tell, okay, then tell me now. <laughs> well, I've done a number of Dutch Koenig horses, and they're a wild breed, so I haven't seen it in Dutch Koenig. I haven't seen it in... Um, I haven't done enough other breeds to say for sure... So in that instance, I would have to say your wild, isolated populations are clean. Because I have seen it in multiple populations whereby we've utilised thoroughbreds, warmbloods and Arabians in the back line. Mm. In stock horses, you would consider as an isolated population. But we utilised thoroughbreds, Arabs and quarter horses late last century. And I see this malformation in Australian stock horses at 4 in 10 at this current time. So, wow. We have those have sorry Icelandic horses. Oh yes, I've looked at Icelandic, but that's what I meant by not enough numbers. So with the two Icelandic horses, I don't think that's enough that I can call upon to say, look, right. I haven't seen them. But I have uh, I can call upon those other breeds, such as the isolates of the Onaguni pony, the isolate semi-wild population of the Dutch Konigs and or the Konig horse that I've seen. I've only seen one Bosnian mountain horse. So yeah, we've radiographed. But 
um, according to the research that I've done, they prefer you to see it through the, because radiographs, it depends on the angles. So yeah. they prefer to see it through the morphology of the bone. Wow. So, so yeah, so this is something that in, in very short order has become a very big problem. The later in here, I should be able to give you some stats later on. It's huge. When do you, what would you think if I was to tell you that when we read the papers, especially the, what we call the retrospective papers from America, uh, Europe, England, and what I've seen in Japan, because I dissect in Japan and in Australia, and of course in, in New Zealand, where there's a lot of thoroughbreds, what if I was to say that I'm looking at close to 40% in thoroughbreds global? I'm seeing a malformation of C6 and or seven and or all of this. So that's a very high population at this point. And as I said, I've read a lot of retro, well, there aren't that many papers on it, but when you start looking at the old literature, you'll actually see them mention it back in the 1800s, but not frequently. It is only mentioned in this century to the frequency to which it's uh, recognized now. And okay, this might be getting ahead of ourselves again, but is there any way to diagnose this other than post-mortem? Oh, radiographs. Okay, so you, so you can, but because, you know, one would think with that percentage of the population, we would want to be looking at our breeding stock and making sure that they don't have a malformation. So we're not continuing to breed it. Mm. We suspect, and Deruan out of UC Davis, he recommended that with the same malformation, after I published my first paper on this, he followed on with uh, looking at it in retrospective radiographs, whereas I was writing it from, well, digging up dead horses and uh, abattoirs and, uh, you know, horses that were suspicious and horses that were on the table due to various anomalies, like that first one, that five-year-old Irish sport horse, various issues that, you know, were causing a horse to be euthanized. And Deruan said in the light of the same morphological mal or anomalous C6 and C7 in two geographically isolated locations, it would have to be considered a genetic component would be involved. That was Deruan out of UC Davis when he wrote that paper back in 2016 after my 2014 paper. So this has now gone on even further where 10 papers have been written of them, three of them are my own and one uh, as a mentor to another person who's doing her PhD on this subject. So with that in mind, um, yes, is there a genetic component? Through this webinar, I'm going to show you there's a heritable component. Okay. Um, yeah, to date, we have a current data suggests it's a global impact. And here are the countries that we have absolutely confirmed its locations. So Japan, it's, Japan at any one point in a day can have 30,000 racehorses ready to race. 30,000 in that small country. Oh, I had no idea. Hmm. So I've, let's say um, recently when I did six dissections in Japan, of course not this, not this year, previous years, yeah. I've done about in total 10 thoroughbreds in Japan and six had the malformation. Wow. So a little bit high. Here in Australia, of course, I've, my first um, paper says we had it at 38% in 2014. In New Zealand, it can be crossbreds, it can be thoroughbreds. In Europe, predominantly the malformation in Europe is predominantly warm blood. 
And I want to put this question out for you to think for one second. Why warm blood? Of course, the UK and of course, America. I've seen it due to the radiographs and the papers that have come through from America and Canada. So let's go back to that question. Why warm bloods? And that's because of the two world wars at the beginning of last century, the first half of last century, whereby there was a genetic bottleneck in the warm bloods due to, well, how do we survive if we've got nothing to pull the cannons and nothing to eat? We actually decimated the warm bloods and a lot of breeds were very low and dangerous. So they, they revitalised these breeds with, you named it, thoroughbreds. Yep. And, that, and I see that um, like in some countries in Europe now, the horses are, I call them gummy hot because they're the thoroughbred hot, but the warm blood kind of looseness is a mm. very um, strange combination and, and sometimes can be really difficult to ride for like an amateur. Um, and, and with that in mind, I would consider then radiographing the caudal neck as we've seen in Europe. There, it, there are differentials to this being a, a problem, but I'll take you forward a little bit further than that now. So the published papers and diagnostic resources identified these countries as having ECVM in the population. There we are. Okay. These are confirmed locations. But now we can also add other countries such as um, more European countries. And um, you'll notice that Basically, when you think of the breeding program, a lot of the artificial insemination and the semen is coming out of these countries outside of Australia. So, yeah, we have a few concerns here. Yeah. That's interesting that Finland's on the list because um, I've taught in Finland, I taught in Finland for 11 years um, and they have a Finn horse, but then they got have all the other warm blood. So I'd be, uh, be curious to look in, at the Finn horse. Um, mm, which in Finland. Say again? In warm bloods yeah it's in the warm bloods yeah because their their native horse their fin horse um is a sort of a small um draft like a light draft mm -hmm. um, so but the fins fjords, um but i still again like the icelandic don't have enough numbers of fjords to say right uh, they've got it but again I'm inclined to, when I look at the backline and when I research the backline of the breeding programs, we actually find that thoroughbreds start to come in and, and that becomes an issue. Again, we're looking predominantly at what happened between the First and Second World War when we had a genetic bottleneck in the warm bloods. Right. Out of curiosity, have you looked at a lot of Frisians? It's, I actually haven't because... Um, these are very expensive horses and people honestly don't want to sometimes know what's wrong with their horse because Frisians have another issue as a result of the wars and that's dwarfism. So with that in mind, what we do have of Frisians is retrospective radiographs and current radiographs and they have it through the radiographic diagnostic technique. So that, that's one good thing. I haven't had to die. They're, they're big animals. I've done Andalusian. And, oh, that's a lot of animals put on the table. Unless you're breeding for the smaller variety. Someone asked me, have I done some of the big heavy drafts? And actually, no. And there's a good reason for that. We can't lift them up. Oh. <laughs> Just, they're monstrous. If, I, if, they do, if they're done on the ground, then we've got a chance. But then you can't turn them over so easily either. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, moving on. Okay. <laughs> breeds uh, that we've actually, we can actually um, recognise them in. And notice that when I say warm bloods, I'm talking Oldenburg, Hanoverian, Trichina. I'm talking Frisians. I'm talking about it all. If you'll notice that a lot of these breeds, 
And when I say and their derivatives, that means any derivative of the breed above, not and Australian stock horse and their derivatives, any breed and above. So the sad news is that that encompasses virtually nearly all of the backlines in so many of the rideable horses. So we're not talking draft horses here. We're talking rideable horses. So whether it's in draft horses, well, that's very, very possible. That, but the interesting thing about draft horses in, in my mind is I go back to domestication, when, which was about five to 6,000 years ago, and they domesticated about, mm, they talk about two centres of domestication. So let's talk about two possible species of equus that were domesticated. Since then, we have over 540 recognised breeds of horse and 650 non-recognised. In other words, we have 650 breeds of horse of which 540 are recognised as a stud registry. With that in mind, we did that in five to 6,000 years. So is there a possibility? I've actually seen a um, person put up on um, the internet that this was in a, and I saw it in America, a Clydesdale. And that caught me off guard. So I've seen it in a Clydesdale in the bones, but again, I didn't have any breeding background. They couldn't tell me if it was a first cross Clydesdale, which is, I know it's a Clydesdale breed. So I did see it. But again, if I can't research it all the way back, I'm very cautious about making it a public statement. So in that, that's only just anecdotal evidence. Coming forward. So in summary, we have the congenital malformation of ECVM. It affects the cervicothoracic junction from C6 to T2. 11 countries have identified it in the population. That is through literature, scientific literature, and through radiographic diagnostics. And nine breeds and derivatives have been identified with ECVM. And that doesn't sound like it's a lot when you think of all the breeds that I just mentioned. Having said that though, which are your most rideable breeds? Let's just go back to that. When you think of it and you look at that, these are the most breeds that we deal with in the majority of our life. Some people wouldn't deal with Frisians, but in Holland, it's a breed to be reckoned with. Yeah. So what were the circumstances that brought this information to my attention? Now folks, <clears throat> this is what happened to me in 1996, a horse in a race had to be put down. The thing about this race was that no one thought anything different about why this horse was um, in, incurred the trauma that it did. However, in 1999, I was asked by the Victorian Racing Club to build them a skeleton because have bones will travel. In that in mind, I went and dug this horse up off the racetrack and we're going to watch his race. I'm going to point him out. Here we are. I want you to watch the horse with the white blinkers right here. Watch the action of his head in fourth position. Watch the way he gallops. This horse had seven starts. This was his seventh. I spoke to the rider, who was also the track work rider. I spoke, to, of course, that he was the jockey here. I spoke to the owner, the breeder, and the trainer. And they all said this horse was difficult and lugged and was very, um, it felt very unsafe to ride. I said to the jockey, why did you ride him? He said, because I need to put food on the table. Yeah. With this, watch this head action of this horse, that one I mentioned, here we are. Here he is, right here in the fourth videos, 
playing a little bit broken up, but I think I still think it's it it's uh, visible to see what's going on. Watch him coming around the corner. It's this bit of a lug that he has, as I explained. There's no one touching him. There's no one bumping him. He's in free in a free position, and wham, down he goes. Oh, wow. Okay, let's just take that back fractionally. Watch his head again. Here he is in fourth position right here. The head action isn't that of a true gallop. Right. This is what becomes really interesting. He didn't start him till he was four years of age. The jockey consistently throughout riding this horse from the age of four said he was difficult. It wasn't just difficult, he said he was difficult to turn and he broke. He broke the right front leg, which is often very typical of a horse that's racing in this direction. However, the jockey said to me, he didn't go in the leg first. He went in the back end first and then he came forward and broke the leg. And so with that in mind, that horse was in fourth position when he came down. When I dug him up, I was absolutely flabbergasted as to why a horse could race with the malformation. So in 1999, the Victorian Racing Club, who requested it from yours truly, went out and <laughs> I dug him up. <laughs> that night were very short and sharp due to the aroma, apparently, but I had no obvious, you know, I wasn't aware that I stunk. It was just, I've gone and dug up this dead horse. The thing that caught me off guard on my 40th birthday, so we're now looking at 1999. Here on the left, this is the, the sixth cervical vertebra of a horse that's represented Australia in endurance and as, is an individual bronze medal winner from the 1990 World Championships. Now, when you look for symmetry, we're looking here between transverse processes, we're looking here. And this horse is 19 at death. And so he's not too bad. Now let's look at that horse that came down in the race. That horse is called Presley. Look at his C6. He's missing a huge portion of bone. Yeah. Now that complete tubercle that's absent is a major site for attachments of musculature so that the caudal neck is held not only in position, but actually is supported ventrally. Look at the articular processes. They're asymmetrical and significantly so, as are the transverse processes. Look at the vertebral canal size. And by the way, Lionel, which is, by the way, Lionel is the normal one. Okay. Presley is the abnormal one. So I actually know my bones by name, so I call them by their original names. Look at Presley's vertebral canal size. Presley is bigger than Lionel. Lionel yeah. is 15 one. Presley is 16 hands. Look at that vertebral canal. And that became an issue for me. Look at the asymmetry here in the pedicles. So basically, equine complex vertebral malformation just didn't incorporate one thing. Look at C7. Here we have Lionel on the left, who's normal. Basic symmetry is relatively normal. And a horse that has been doing endurance, think about the number of kilometres or in your, in your instance, the miles. Now look at Presley's. He transposed a big portion of that bone that was absent here, has transposed onto C7 with what's called an arterial foramen. 
See that? Wow. Where's the symmetry here? Now we look at, again, the articular process joints. Now, someone said to me, well, Sharon, that can be racing and training in one direction. Oh, I, I agree. Unfortunately, though, that we have that many samples that it's conducive of this asymmetry in the bone now that we can prove that it's just not racing um, as a causative factor. So again, look at the vertebral canal. So we include arterial foramen. We include asymmetry and a, a small vertebral canal. What we have here is what's called the ventral tubercle. Right. Here, his is skewed right off. See it? See it there? It's skewed off. So the symmetry in the bone is, has its own scoliosis in one single bone in the caudal neck prior to going through the transition of the cervicothoracic junction to the thoracic vertebra. So that became, oh, how do I give that to the Victorian Racing Club? You know, this is normal. Well, it's not normal. Right. Here we're looking at the ventral aspect of them. So here's normal on the left. These are my caudal ventral tubercles. You can see here it's present on Lionel, the normal one, and absent on Presley. And you can see here, his ventral tubercle is kicked off to the side here. Yep. You can see the asymmetry in the transverse processes. See the asymmetry here to here. Yeah. Even here to here. Remembering that this is an elite athlete. This is what we want. We have a cranial ventral tubercle and we have asymmetry here in the growth plate. See that? Yep. This is showing you that this horse is just rising seven. He's six and a half at death. His growth plates are still open and under the influence of this asymmetrical load. This is where it became more interesting from my perspective. I found the malformation could be on the left, could be on the right. So here we have a right malformation where it's what we call unilateral on the six. And here we have it transposed into the seventh. And we can have it bilateral. So Ooh. we can have it on both and transposed. So in that instance, it's just not one, it's three presentations of C6 that we found and presentations into C7. So here we have a little summary of where it can be unilateral or bilateral. So it's one-sided or both sides. And it's always in the presence of an absent caudal ventral tubercle on C6. 50% of the absent ventral tubercles on C6 in whether it's a unilateral or bilateral will transpose. So in other words, it will transpose onto the ventral surface of C7. This is the research so far. That's from my study. Wow. Unilateral left is 70%. Bilateral is 20 and unilateral right is 10%. Now it, the work... I, I was so, going to say, that's kind of interesting that it's uh, so skewed to unilateral left. Ooh, ooh. Have any thoughts on that? Oh, yes, embryology, um, I have. When you think about a lot of other functions that are on the left-hand side of the body, I'm just wondering if there is a component there, such as a heart. Right. Um, the lungs are different left and right. Yep, liver um, is too. Liver is predominantly centre and right, spleen, um, pancreas, stomach, all of those variations. So technically, I haven't gone into that area because I've been so tied up in not only this research, but in other research that I've been trying to ascertain what's happened with um, losing 
buccal ligament lamella in the horse. But anyway, that's another journey. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but I just find it fascinating that, it, that you're finding that so statistically significantly left. Mm. But the research currently is showing that bilateral is catching up. Oh, oh. <laughs> so that's the research of another, um, that's who I'll introduce to you later. Okay. So in summary, it always is in the presence, ACVM is always in the presence of a malformed C6. It presents in either a unilateral or bilateral morphology. 50% of that absence on C6 will transpose onto C7. And it's 70% left, bilateral 20% and right, 10%. So in 2014, by the way, when I began researching this and writing this up in my master's back in 2004 and 2005, I received an informal death threat on not to publish the bloodlines. And it was just a little minor threat. A, th a, a friend contacted me and said, look, we know about it down here and we're warning you, letting you know there's a warning out and it'll be car accident and no one will investigate. So there's a reason why it took so long from 1999 to 2014 to publish. That's because my children were in the car with me still in that early period of this century. So I backed off and just continued to collect the data. Wow, but you know, I mean, that's just, I, I, I mean, for so many reasons that, it, I, I don't even know where to start on that one other than if they already knew this was happening and they continue to breed the, um, you know, anyway, the ethics behind it is just, and the morals and, and yeah. Okay. I'm speechless. Okay. <laughs> the, the morality of it is, um, someone will say to me, you know, Sharon, that jockey could have got injured in that position. I said, yes, but the horse got put down. Went, oh yeah. That jockey could have been killed. <laughs> so I actually honestly thought about the horse first before I thought about the jockey. How many times has a horse come down in a race and has had this malformation? I'm not saying it's the predominant reason why horses come down in races. I'm saying I think it should be investigated. Right. Um, of course, that just led to more, well, uh, I got attacked then on this area. You're interfering with our industry. And I said, I understand. Well, do you realise our income is reliant upon the breeding of these horses? And I said, so you're okay with putting your children on these horses? And that's where it stops. Yeah. You're okay with putting someone else's son, daughter, husband, wife, brother, sister, but not their own children if they realise that this is going on. And that becomes an interesting thought from my perspective. So with that in mind, I, because I'd only found it by 2014 predominantly in thoroughbreds or derivatives of thoroughbreds, I published without the bloodlines. And here's an abstract. Now, don't read the abstract. I've okay. highlighted what you need to see. Perfect. 123 horses. So I'm dissecting and I'm digging, obviously head down, backside, back up again. And of the 50 thoroughbreds, because this is how they said I could only publish, I wasn't allowed to publish on radiographs because even though I'm a scientist, I'm not a veterinarian. So I couldn't diagnose from the, from the radiographs. So of the 50 thoroughbreds, 19 had the malformation. So we're talking about C6 or C6, C7 and first rib cephal. But anyway, I'll continue with that in a minute. Three out of three thoroughbred derivatives and of the purpose-bred horses, such as quarter horses, warm bloods and so forth, at that point in time, none. Of those 11, of, of those 22, so we're talking, add the three to the 19, you get 22 with the malformation. 11 had transposed on C7. So it was a C6 and C7 paper. So if the biomechanical forces are uneven, 
if we look at a bilateral C6, this is a racehorse mare and this is Presley. So this is, by the way, this is Flopsy on the left. <laughs> and this is Presley. And of course, we're looking at a bilateral. Look at the asymmetry in the dorsus, in the transverse processes. Look at the asymmetry in the caudal ventral tubercles and look at Lionel. I beg your pardon, look at Presley. Just goes on and on, this asymmetry. So with biomechanical forces, there's got, uh, sorry, asymmetrical forces, there's got to be asymmetrical biomechanical forces. So logic dictates with asymmetric form comes asymmetric function. Absolutely. And we have a question in the chat. Of, I think it's a good one. So somebody's asking, how does the left malformation present in which front foot is dominant? In other words, I think what they're asking is, do you see a dominant foot in association with, uh, with a particular uh, left or right malformation? And if I was in a lecture scenario, I'd throw that person a minty, a lolly. <laughs> I remember minties. I love them. <laughs> because that's the perfect question to where this is leading to. And I'm going to answer that and I'm going to show you measurements. Okay. This will become very interesting as we, and, and I can imagine everyone's minds are jumping in all kinds of directions with this, but we do have some uh, a logical process to get you through. Okay. So here we go. Therefore, with the muscles, they must alter as well. Because right. when you think without a form to attach to, what will the muscle do? And this is what we found. This is a bilateral horse with a bilateral transposition. You can see here, we're looking at the longest coli muscles on the ventral layer of the cervical vertebra going into the thoracal portion. And look at the midline here, which is this yellow line here. See that? Yep. It's deviated as has the size of the medial layer and the ventral layer of the longus collar has altered. Now this was perfectly symmetrical, but let me show you a horse in, so this was Australia, a thoroughbred. This here is a Morgan. I haven't seen it in Morgans yet, <laughs> but I haven't dissected lots of Morgans. This is the longus collar. You can see it is virtually even. So in other words, symmetrical as it's entering the thoracic inlet. This is a thoroughbred in Japan with less left side unilateral absence. You'll see the thoracic portion here, I'm gonna open up closer, is enlarged. See the hypertrophy of the muscle and it's pressing on the trachea right here. Ooh. Here on the side that is not malformed, it is off the trachea and well spaced. I wanna ask you, for those anatomists out there that might be watching, what nerve passes here? Tick, tick, tick. Let's see if we have tick. an answer because I don't have an answer. Uh, That's okay because it's the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Oh, okay. So, so uh, I, I have to go back. I'm not the neurology. I'm not the best at. So That's fine. We found that the recurrent laryngeal nerve had been pinched through here, and I know for a fact that predominantly the horses have a recurrent laryngeal hyperplasia on the left side. And that's because so in, loop, in layman's yeah. terms, what would how would you describe that? Rora. Ah, that's what I thought. Okay. Hold on. It's Aurora. Now I'm not saying, I'm just saying we found in these presentations, we found the nerve pinch between the trachea and the longus coli as it's coming through from the thoracic cavity up into the caudal neck region. And isn't there a branch of the vagal nerve that's also along there somewhere? Yes, it's a little bit higher. Okay. 
my, my lost vagus nerve, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> in, in the, the it's not lost, it's lost vagus nerve because it, it certainly alters, as do orthoneurological ortho uh, areas through here. But I'll show you that in a minute. Okay. Here we go. Here it is. <laughs> right, folks. The ventral scalene, this here, the blue line and the yellow line, are the dorsal and ventral lines of where the scalene, the ventral scalene exists on the horse as it's coming down from the cervical vertebra and attaching to the first rib. See that? Okay. Now you'll see here nerves, the C8 and T1 nerves passing through it. Okay. You'll see here the brachial plexus, which these two nerves are a part of, passing up and over it. This is a malformed scalene. It should not have bifurcated, in other words, gone in two. It should not have nerves passing through it. So when it contracts, it pinches them against the rib here. Oh, wow. This horse presented, and you'll notice here the phrenic nerve. This is the phrenic nerve coming from six and seven. Yep. That's the nerves. Is strained across the scalene as it passes through to the thoracic inlet. So the vagus nerve is strained across this muscle and leaves an imprint upon, upon removal. So here we have the brachial plexus and here we have part of the brachial plexus passing through a muscle that's bifurcated. And every time this muscle contracts, you're influencing the C8 and T1 nerves, which are governing the falling as well as part of the brachial plexus. And I'll show you that even further. So yes, we find the malformation affects not only the musculature, we can't presume which musculature it's going to change. We predominantly see it from the, a little bit through hypertrophy, through the brachiocephalicus and the ventral scalene alterations, but predominantly we see it in the longus coli. But these are variations that we'll find. How often and, do you see this bifurcation with the nerves trapped in it like this? I've seen this particular case was very unique, okay. but I have seen this variation. This one took two nerve roots, so the C8 and the T1. So not just one, it took two. But we found, so that's the area of concern right there. Right. Um, wow. Okay, so if we think back to um, that racehorse, what was his name? Presley. Presley, which we don't know what was going on with his muscles because they weren't there by the time you dug him up. But the way he was lugging oh, his neck, who that, knows what kind of nerve impingement he was suffering from. Because that's why I started to look for another marker, external. So just in summary of that, just so I'll take you through that next area you're going. The variations in the musculature involved attachments to C6 and C7. And the associative muscular can vary in size, so it can hypertrophy and its morphology due to altered attachment sites will alter. And this is what we wrote. This was with Catherine Walker um, from Victoria doing her master's. Um, I gave her a hand with, uh, mentored her through while I was writing this paper up. And what it was, the variations and implications of the gross morphology in only one muscle, because when you're writing, you're very specific about your target. And I was talking about the variations here to the six and seven cervical vertebra of the longest coli. We found in our small study, nine had displayed it with a distinct asymmetry. The asymmetry was noted in the entheses patterns and articular process joints. 
and abnormal mechanical load because of the hypertrophy and atrophy. It raised more questions to the equilibrium of these horses because in this particular paper, we did not include the stillborn, mind you. Stillborns are um, being dissected that have the malformation. And predominantly we find that stillborns appear in the last uh, six weeks in the third trimester. It raises questions as to the, the equilibrium of these affected horses and the safety in handling and riding them. Because if the nerves that are governing the limbs are altered or compromised, then maybe we have some other issues occurring in these limbs. So what came next was the question. And ribbing, yeah. With ribbing. Because here are some of the ribs that the nerves were being compacted against which is supposed to be a typical axial line here. So where the nerves would travel through that axial line there. Here is Lionel, the nice white ones. And here is Presley. Um, oh my God, what, what is that exactly? Well, it's, a, it's what your steak and rib house would love. You get more meat on a two-headed rib if you're coming to a steak and, and more meat on a flared rib. So, but these affirmations are the first and second rib. So the first and second rib, basically, they're not, it just was formed that way. He was born this way because we'll find this in the dissection of uh, stillborns as wow. well. It's really concerning. Outside of the fact that the pup did a bit of a nibble job on the bottom of the ribs, the pup that we had at the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's not malformed here. Okay. That's just <laughs> he was so happy and proud when he presented this rib to me. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I bet you were not so happy. <laughs> no, not so happy. But I don't even know how he found it. Anyway, having said all that, this is what we'd deem normal. Even Don't worry about that little hole there. This is what we'd deem normal here. And that's Lionel, that bronze medalist. This is a double-headed or a bifid rib. That's the first rib. This is a flared rib. Now, in human terms, this would create a, a condition called thoracic outlet syndrome which you end up with paresis and parathesis. So you can get clubbing of the hands or you can get itching of the limb. So have a look at this one for a, a doozy. If we're looking at a normal rib uh, formation to the sternum up here, you'll see how the rib comes down and the costal chondral junction here goes to the chondral sternal junction here. See, that, that's, that's relative what we'd call normal. This is a thoroughbred I dissected with a unilateral left side. That's the first rib. Didn't even make it to the sternum. This is the second rib that has a flared formation and two entries or uh, attachments to the sternum. And that's just, and this is why ECVM is so complex. We can't radiograph this with ease. Unless you're Sue Dyson, she's brilliant. <laughs> I have to get her on as a guest. I def definitely I have to get a contact there. Um, so and the first rib and the second rib. And by the way, this is a normal third rib. Wow. Again, you get more meat for your money if you're going to a, a ribbon steakhouse and you're eating a cow with this perhaps. So, so yeah. Someone's asked a question. Um, she says, I'm fascinated to understand what's happening embryologically for all this to occur. Will we eventually be able to test for this genetic alteration? I believe UC Davis, having mentioned that it could be a genetic component here, would 
absolutely be um, accurate in that. I believe there has to be a genetic component because a clever cookie who asked that question, they found the genetic component in the Holstein cattle. And it was simple as ABC. It was a transposition of phenylalanine with valine and it changed the recipe in cooking the ribs. Wow. Like a thoracic junction. It was a simple transposition in the DNA in so, one allele. But you would have, uh, um, I mean, that was in one breed of cattle and we're looking at how many breeds of horses. So we'd have to figure out. We're, we're well over 10 breeds of horse. We know now I've, I've mentioned nine here to be safe, um, but definitely you'd find it. And I, I fear that it's because it can be recessive. I fear that you can have a carrier. Right. And that's of concern. So, so we would all have to come to the understanding that we're going to genetically test our horses. See, I'm just thinking about the, in the quarter horse world, the, um, the um, HYPP, which we've never been able to resolve because there's too much money involved, I think is the bottom line. I remember researching that um, and, and looking at that component. I, I did the genetic program at University of Guelph and I posed that question and she said that it is, it's a very hot topic to still this day. Um, this, this hyper, this complete genetic process really needs to be sorted. But for those people that are uncertain, before you purchase the horse, these malformations will not occur unless C6 is involved. And that's easier for the veterinarian to radiograph and diagnose than any of these other conditions. Sue Dyson has radiographed this in America. Sorry, Sue Dyson has radiographed this in the UK. I dissected this in Australia. So we have the exact replica of the morphological variation in the UK as we have in Australia. So that's what I'm saying. We'll find these around the world. There's more than one variation of the rib. But in this instance, look at sternum. Wow. How can a horse race with a sternum like that? How can you now, ride a horse with a sternum like that? It'll never be upright and symmetrical. I mean, how many trainers said we can get them straight for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And but it's also, not, there also is a component there on the, on the opposite, on the, on the right hand side of the rib cage, isn't there? No, that's normal, but it's normal and pulled around. See, I'm doing a standing dissection here and I don't mean I'm the one standing. We do standing dissections in Australia. Wow. And and we put the horses up and I dissect both sides just so that the student can watch the one side palpate the other while I dissect and prep the next side. And so they go from one side to the other. And this is what, when we were getting, like when she was up there, this poor girl, I called her, we didn't, we weren't allowed to know her name. So I called her Betty. Okay. And Betty here has the malformation here to here. It's pulled the sternum and this would have started in utero. And here we have the normal side being pulled around so it, yeah because it just from that angle on that picture it also looks like there's something wrong with the ribs but it's because they're they've overlapped in the way it's been twisted i think is what i'm seeing yes oh. wow so this is the complete variation at this point that we see outside of how it influences the body so this is an influence this is a symptom of the malformation this horse here, so we've got Lionel here on the left, who's normal, and this is Centoasis. His rib is not only straight, but it's bent into the thoracic 
cavity or into the thoracic inlet here and then comes out to meet the sternum. So the sternum's over here. Whoa. The left side. Whoa. Now I've dissected this and it's very hard because we don't have a first rib in these horses. These horses present, and Bradley saw this, so Bradley is an anatomist from Scotland in the early 1900s, and he saw this in 1901. So I've seen this a few times myself. There is what's called a rudimentary sternal, well, a rudimentary head to the rib and sternal um, attachment, rudimentary, tiny, and in between is a ligament. Wow. So there's no rib. So what do, the, what do the muscles do in the presence of no rib? In this case, for instance, the scalene, and remember you asked me about the variations of the scalene? The scalene's got nothing to attach to, nor does serratus ventralis, nor does all the other muscles that will utilize the first rib attachment. In this instance, the scalene on pond dissection goes medial, so inside the thoracic cavity, and attaches to the second rib. So again, it's impacting upon the esophagus, impacting upon the trachea and the nerves and those are the vessels that are passing through. Oh. So in this instance, um, I've dissected this in unilateral and bilateral, but wait, there's still more. <laughs> the anomalous presentation of the ribs in the ECVM are quite variable. There's just multiple variations of these ribs. We can have a two head or a two insertion. We can have the first rib attached to one insertion and the rest of the work. The, the anatomy of the musculature coming through may attach to this one, over onto this one, or this or this. It's just quite variable. In the process, the nerves are trying to come down and avoid these malformations. So with the combined structural limitations, these variations create greater challenges for accurate diagnostic procedures. So in other words, these horses will present with falling issues in the case of Betty, she presented with intermittent left um, forelimb lameness and intermittent right forelimb lameness. It ended her racing career. Mind you, they were trying to race her. So anyway, they never could diagnose, nothing blocked to the limb. And this is what Sue Dyson found in the UK when they blocked out the caudal neck in the malformation. And in their study, they had three they actually could resolve some of the limb issues that were happening in the forelimb. So, and potentially, when you have all of these involved, it becomes more debilitating. So here's a different one. This rib is a flared first, presented in an elongated form, a shortened right. What becomes really concerning here, in this instance, the scalene is abnormal. It attaches to the entire length of the first rib. So in other words, this is the same horse. This is jazz. Wow. All that length there. You can look at the asymmetry in the thoracic inlet. And of course, because of the length of the, of the scalene, the phrenic nerve has been um, stretched. The phrenic nerve comes out of the nerve root C6 and C7. And the phrenic nerve is completely stretched in this eventing thoroughbred who had shown signs of paresis and paresis. And I'll get to that in a second. So the congenital malformations of the first and second ribs are only expressed in the presentation of C6 and or C7. So none of these occur unless, again, C6 is involved. And in this instance of the ribs, C6 and C7. So the ratio of the transposition, this got to become really alarming. So let's 
look at it in terms of 10. I'm going to hold up all 10 fingers. Oh, we'll try the other hand too. <laughs> in that instance, if we have 10 horses, four in 10 here, present with the malformation of C6. Two of those four transpose onto C7. One of those two with C7 have rib malformation. One in 10 will have C6, C7, and first and second rib malformation. That's, that's a statistic that's simple, I hope, to follow, because it's hard, hard when you look at it this way. So that's quite large when you, but at least by radiographing C6, you've got a chance. So it incorporates first and second, ECVM incorporates the first and second um, sternal ribs and skeletal variations. And anomalies of the first and second are quite variable. There's just so many. Sometimes I look at it and go, oh, I didn't think of that one. But they're always going to influence the curvature and the, the um, balance of the horse through the sternum. The ratios are four to two to one. Think of that out of 10. Is that, can you actually pal uh, palpate uh, that curvature in the sternum? Yes, you can. Okay. So that would um, be something that, that would be... A could look for or a veterinarian could look for, yes. Yeah, okay. Sorry for preempting what you're going to say then. But um, in my years of dissection of 25 years, up until the beginning of this century, I used to try and palpate every live horse prior to dissection. So I used to go to the abattoirs and dissect, dissect horses, but I'd also palpate them prior to dissection and write down my findings. Unfortunately, um, I was so naive in what I was doing. I was, um, it's, it's easy to say you're naive. I just didn't have the information. Well, that, you can't I, look for something you don't know about, right? I mean. It's not public, it wasn't published. There was, right. I would see it now, I've seen it in uh, radiographic books, but um, Sue Dyson uh, was very, very forthright, uh, not forthright as in me, I mean, trying to say this in the best way. Um, she said, oh, Sharon, we actually started to see it in the um, 80s. And in, in that, we didn't get the data, the, the numbers. What happened with me was I started dissecting in the 90s and I started to see the numbers really start to increase or become more obvious in the 2000s. So we've had this wonderful discussion whereby she's uh, included in some of her papers and referenced and cited the work that I've been doing. And that's a great honour. I think that's um, when you have well, and that's the thing is where you know it's we start to see something, but it but you know it it takes sometimes kind of hearing having that bell rung in different ways for you to suddenly go, oh, wait a second, I've been seeing this for the past how many years, but didn't realize what we were seeing, and it's and it's people like you that are doing this kind of research that's so important so that we can people can be more aware of it and start to look for it, so because we can't do anything about it unless we know it's there. Right. And, the, and the thing about this is that they're now looking back on their own retrospective like retrospectively over the studies over the years, and they're coming forth with publications. Uh, it's not the first time that that's been said to me, and it um, by professors and other doctors. It's just I respect Sue Dyson so much for actually uh, citing the literature that's been written, 
and putting it forward and thinking about it and taking it to the next level and saying, well, we had problems with these horses. They were rearing. They had a head tilt. They couldn't manage certain positions. They were lame, intermittent lame. So she's, she's published this paper in 2018. I certainly recommend it because 25 horses they retrospectively studied wow. over through the clinical um, write-up and couldn't block the lameness to the forelimb. Three of those 25 were the malformation that were recorded. And she brought that forward. And I think that is so incredibly relevant. But uh, moving on from that, though, because I know I've got, there's the paper I wrote, congenital malformations of the first sternal rib. In actual fact, it should be first and second sternal rib. Yeah. But there we are. It's published on that. And here, don't worry about the abstract. Just worry about what's highlighted. And these congenital malformations are likely to produce clinical and functional ramifications of the thoracic inlet, thoracic limb, and thoracic viscera with the probability of altering posture and locomotive function as noted in four horses demonstrating this congenital malformation. That was in this paper. So we saw abduction of the limb, we saw deviations of the limb as a result of the variation in the rib. And it concurred with other work by authors that had talked about fractured ribs or ribs that had had a birth um, trauma. So moving on. Let's talk about what's not published. <laughs> so, I'll just relocate on my seat, grab a bit more coffee because I start to get a bit slobbery when I get excited and I need to settle down. But maybe coffee isn't the best thing. You'll notice when I'm talking at a conference, a lot of people who know me are very wise now. They don't take the first row, yeah. they take the second row back. And it's because I get very excited and I come forward and I, I, I start to slur and I start to spit because I, yeah, I just get so excited and passionate about the subjects that I'm talking about uh, to the point where at one conference, the whole front row put up umbrellas. So, <laughs> um, so when I'm teaching in a classroom situation and I see a student cleaning their glasses, I know that I've come up too close and I've got excited with the lecture. So yeah, we have to be careful about that now with COVID, right? <laughs> Shields, face shields. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, there's a moment I'm embarrassed. I'm like, you know, that's me. That's me being passionate. So here yeah. we go. It's okay. No, we can protect ourselves. <laughs> well, I wipe my screen from time to time. <laughs> um, Non-published anatomic findings. This is going to be interesting because even though it's not unpublished, I'm going to introduce you to someone who is going to take it to a clinical finding, hopefully. So at this point, the published anatomic data regarding ECVM has been discussed. Now for the unpublished data. In one of the horses, and this is going to answer that question earlier about the stance. This horse here, so as if we're looking at the horse front on, you can see that P3 or the distal phalanx is smaller than the right one. See that? Yep. This is a four-year-old left unilateral C6, C7, first rib. That's the, the, it didn't even have a first rib. It only had the ligament. And this little chap Dedo here had what we call, it was smaller on the ipsilateral side. So on the same side. His frog, so as if, left and right. So sorry about this, but the frog was smaller. Just trying to keep it in unison. So yeah. there, that was his frog on the same side. So his left side frog was smaller than his right. He had a smaller frog on the same side as his amalgamation. And I started to get a bit of a clue. Okay. Then we had a mare radiographed 
and she had the malformation on the left side and I measured the frogs without dissecting. So in other words, I hadn't seen the malformation. I'm dissecting away. I've measured the frogs prior to the dissection. She was shorter than her right side by six mils and she was narrower by six mils. So her frog on the same side of the malformation was also smaller. So that tells me a number of things outside of the fact that it could be a navicular or other issue in the limb. I started to then look at it a little bit more. Well, so and the two feet are such different size. I mean, there's such a difference in those two feet. Besides the And Betty, the one you saw before, I did the same with her and called the left side. But the interesting thing is that it hasn't proven to be wrong so far in my dissections. Now here is a horse that has the um, right fore. So this horse has got the malformation. Look at the size of his foot. So they're looking for a lameness and they've noted that we've got these variations between the left and right and the size foot is different. Yep. Okay. That becomes interesting because now we're looking at MRIs and CTs. This horse matched it. So what happened was they had investigated the foot first before they went caudal neck and they found this correlation. Here we have a bilateral. And so the bilateral frogs are even, sorry that they're not cleaner, to the P3s. So with ECVM, the bilaterals are the same. Here we have this bilateral mare transposing her absent CVTs onto her aborted um, nine, eight to nine months old foal. It's born without this um, caudal ventral tubercles. So we have a maternal link. Wow. Heritable. It's directly heritable. The other things we found in this malformation was that we can have half vertebra. Now in the Holstein cattle, hemivertebra or half vertebra were noted in the neck. This is in a five-year-old thoroughbreds lumbar sacral junction here. Wow. With scoliosis of the Same. sacrum. Only five. Look at the amount of fusion. Look at the amount. So this horse is presenting with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven transverse processes of the lumbar. He actually presented with six and a half. It was really odd. So the variations throughout the axial skeleton can continue on to the hind limb. So here we have the Holstein calf born in this unfortunately contracted position in the forelimb. Here we have a warm blood in uh, Belgium born with a similar contracture. This warm blood was C6, C7, first sternal ribs and contracted forelimbs, exactly the same as the Holstein calf. Was fatal in the Holstein industry. And obviously this is one of the um, unfortunate bubs that I've had to dissect to find out what was going on. So what we did, we radiographed this stillborn, which has obviously not got any hair on it. So it was in the last, um, it was prior to six weeks before abortion. Uh, the thing is we couldn't straighten out these legs. The contracture was so abnormal. Wow. The mare of this foal radiographed normal. Mm. Yes. So 
the foal was conceived through artificial insemination. Do I need to say any more? Nope. It's unilateral in its presentation on the limbs. It goes on through the axial skeleton. We can get hemivertebra and scoliosis. It's maternally heritable and it may elicit abortion because you remember, you remember in that first video I showed you, the racehorse came down. He was one of six matings, in other words, seasonal matings. There had been three abortions. One of the survivors was a wobbler. Another survivor was a wobbler. And of the six matings, he was the only one to make it to the track. And shouldn't have. <laughs> it makes you suspicious that I've been dissecting these uh, spontaneous abortions at nine months. So I've done three already, which is really sad really sad for the owners because and the mayor of course for everybody you know everybody so much me, so high hopes and expectations and then yeah me included it's not easy observations and veterinary from client here's some observations that will answer that question these two horses are unilateral left side notice their position of standing left fall forward what we found is that the horses once had been diagnosed, this was what leading up. So this one was at the abattoirs and this one was um, alive. Oh, back we go. Notice how on the left unilateral, they are standing left fall forward. The frog that was smallest and the P3 that was smallest belonged to this horse. This is Ditto. Okay. He's a so even though he's got it placed forward and this one back, you would think in this position, this should have been the contracted frog. Right. It's not. This one. In Sweden, I dissected a Swedish trotter and measured prior to him being euthanized. Oh, well, I should say he was euthanized and then I measured his feet. I watched him move and he moved left lateral malformation. And then his frogs measured right lateral. So I was in a dilemma and I love that. It's a blind study. I need that. And so on the table, what we found on the left side of his neck was where a uh, injection had occurred and he had had a, a final, uh, he'd had a, a reaction and it had, um, had become quite um, sinus and inflamed and had gone down an anaphylactic reaction and had gone down onto the cervical vertebra. Now, Sorry, trying to get my words back again. And this anaphylactic reaction, I didn't palpate it. I didn't see it. I didn't feel it. But there it was sitting midline on the vertebra after having sinus tracks down from the normal injection site. So that would have interrupted the left action of the cervical vertebra. He was malformed right C6, which matched the frog measurement. Mm. So that was a really good... Um, blind study just on myself for that one horse and the fact that he moved left-sided but without realizing about the injection and that it was actually the right foot that indicated it was right malformation so that was a good indicator for me and so far that's why I've been saying when I've been doing the measurements they've been correlating accurately mm. here we have in Japan uh, a racehorse he's standing also on the same scenario I want you to watch him move Unfortunately, you're going to hear, I think, some of the Japanese. 
Now, when he turns around and he comes back, watch the movement of the left forelimb. There, see that? Yeah, it's a little bit uh, not smooth, so it, it, it's a little jerky, so it's a little hard to kind of figure it out. He moves with that left forelimb with a rotation in at the elbow and out, splayed-footed in the left front. Notice where he's placed it slightly forward. Yeah, and you can see that. Play it again just so we might be able to see that a little bit now that we know what we're looking for, because that's the one thing about Zoom that videos don't always play smoothly and um, it's rather unfortunate because we do lots of these videos. Right, he turns around. Now in Japan, they like to keep these horses as stallions. Unfortunately, I do a lot of dissection of these stallions. Oh yeah. And you can see the left deviation. Yeah. What? There, he's gonna land lateral. Yeah. Serious lateral. I don't mind him landing a little lateral, but there it is. Yeah, he's really lateral, yeah. He was the one I showed you where the track here is compromised by the longest coli muscle. Oh. So here we have a, a horse that I've dissected and I found this variation. And here we have the movement. We found bilateral horses, so in that cases we in those cases we've been looking at the unilateral. Huh. Wonder why it did that. Don't know. Okay, let's see if we can't get that down in size. How's that? Uh, yep, getting better. Yep. Good. Huh, I can press buttons too. <laughs> Horses with bilateral positioning, remember the feet, P3, the distal phalanx, they were pretty even. Mm -hmm. These horses predominantly stand base wide. Here, this horse here on the right is the bilateral standing base wide and not even aware that he's got his right leg out there. Yeah. These seven and first ribs. And his first ribs were those ligaments. So he didn't have a first rib shaft. She was normal ribs, but a bilateral C6. And that's how these horses start to stand. And they are set somewhat lower as they age with their neck. She is also the one that had the aborted foal that had the same presentation mm -hmm. in the Right, we're gonna watch her move hopefully. So the bilateral mare, ignore the hind limb if you can see it. It's typical racing uh, in the right here in Australia with that stiffness. What's important is when she turns round and comes back and especially towards the end as she walks towards us, so here she's having a vet workup. She'll stab the right toe, she seems a little bit ambiguous where her legs are, but she stabs the right toe now. And then she doesn't know as she goes over uneven ground where her feet are. Yeah. Now this handler is a yearling handler for thoroughbreds and she said it's the most difficult time to control a horse. So I'm gonna get her to come back again. So you see that? Difficult handling to keep a horse off her feet. See where her lead is to keep the horse right off her? Yeah. Yeah, consistently. So she's had a little stub of the toe there. Right. And here she goes, uneven ground and boom, again. We found that horses coming down a hill or uneven ground 
show this kind of presentation. We found that they can jump, not just bilateral, but unilateral horses can jump with a significant twist in their forelimbs or a significant hanging of a forelimb. See that? Yeah. Now, this is that mare I showed you with that very perverse um, scalene that went all the way down the first rib yep. and then the forelimb was pinched. This is, of course, the Irish sport horse, Mr. T, Mr. McGee. And again, we had a right malformation. This is Arkel, who also jumped very, very peculiarly when he was steepling. When we're looking at these horses with ECVM, they often present with, and not always, but often present with a stilted forelimb movement. This is a warm blood mare and a strange head positioning or action. Let's watch her. This isn't too bad this way. This is a little bit footsore. This mare was put down because she consistently fell over in the paddock and she had broken her pelvis for the second time. Whoa. Riding her at the age of eight because she didn't feel safe to ride. Right. This becomes interesting. Folks, outside of the stilted forelimb gait, watch the base or this aspect area of her neck right through here. It doesn't look normal. Here we go. Right here. Look at the way she turns her head there. Yep. This position here. Well, and even the muscling, the, the tension in the neck muscles. Yeah. There it is. That's a perfect example of how she'd walk with the tilted. And she was the malformation as well. C6, C7. Well, C6, C7 predominantly, first ribs were less involved. You okay with that, folks? Can I move yeah. on? Yep. Okay, so observations. We can have hind limb ataxia hind limb, forelimb ataxia, hind limb ataxia. We can have unpredictable shying. We suspect that it's a nerve that could possibly be pinched. Head tilt, neck tilt, rearing. Random behavior, dangerous random behavior. Stumbling, forelimb abduction when the rib is involved. Downhill and uneven ground ataxia, confirmed by veterinarians that are working on these horses. Paresis, weakness of the limb and paratheses, prickling or irritation, as we see some of these horses with paratheses scratching at the limb with no apparent dermis. So there's no dermatitis, they just stop and scratch the limb. In some instances, they'll even stop while they're galloping and stamp the limb. We'll find proprioceptive dysfunction as, as they hold the limb out, and inconsistent forelimb lameness has been reported on regular occasions. This is an Australian stock horse of two and a half years of age. Uh, he was random behaviour. Uh, we're not allowed to disclose his name. Rearing, very difficult. Walking away, he seems to be amiable. And this is one of the things that's sad with these horses. They seem to be quite amiable on the ground. Here he goes up a hill. He'll turn around and watch him walking towards you. He is a bilateral C6 and C7. And you watch the walk of the forelimbs coming down the hill. You'll see him cross over regularly. This is, this is making me think of more and more horses that I have come across in my life. 
Yeah. So unfortunately, we're looking at Australian stock horses at this point in time about four in 10. That's what I'm finding. That's because of the huge thoroughbred and quarter horse, because we've got it in quarter horses as well. So the sad thing is that he's on the table at two and a half. Yeah. This horse has uh, become dangerous. So in summary, we can have observations that are quite variable, but according to the presentation can be in the musculature or the neurological areas, unilateral, bilateral, the limb on the side of the unilateral, the ipsilateral forelimb can be uh, forward in their preferred stance. And in the preferred stance of a bilateral horse, it is often base wide. We do note an altered limb action as what you've just seen. Clinical diagnosis radiographs. Not scintigraphy, we've not been able to really clarify scintigraphy is going to give us the prognosis or sorry, the diagnosis that we want. This is working with veterinarians. CT scan definitely does. It's awesome. Myelography also identifies vertebral and compression. So when we're looking at a radiograph here, we've got a normal, so we can see the transverse processes here of a normal C6, see that? Mm -hmm. Got bilaterals. Here on the right, an abnormal, you can see it's absent. See that? Yep. Absent. Here on the left, we have a normal C7. Here on the right, you can see it's absent and transposed. So it's normal and there's the abnormal. Okay. The interesting thing is, notice in the normal one here, you can't see the trachea. Right. Here, we're very close to the trachea. Yep. So that becomes of great concern when you're thinking about horses that could be racing and it's impacted. And it maybe it has something to do with the esophagus changing or being compressed in this area as well. And horses that might get choke in the caudal cervical. I mean, these are all anecdotals, but they are out there and been reported with the horses that have the malformation. This is a normal CT of C6 at the same point. This is an ECVM C6. Look at the vertebral canal here. Yeah. This one is seriously compressed at a similar location in the, in the um, scan. But having said that, this is a live horse. Wow. So here's the trachea, what I said to you a moment ago. Look at the change in the musculature. You can see the musculature has changed here. This is the absent C6. Here is it transposed onto C7. So this is a live horse with CT. Now look at the musculature changes throughout. I've never seen a, a live horse CT scan, so this is fascinating to me in general. But the detail that you can see is amazing. It is amazing. It's something we recommend if you have the money. Obviously, if radiographs, first option would be to have the radiograph of C6. Uh, and then you can go from there. This horse was presented... Uh, a dressage horse was presented with intermittent lameness over two years that was not resolving, uh, could not be found in the distal limb to satisfactory level to the lameness. And when they CT'd, they found this. And they also found that the, uh, guess what? The frog was, was changed. Yeah. This, is the, uh, this is a brilliant work of Sue Dyson, where she radiographed the malformation of the rib in the UK, and I've dissected the identical in Australia. So we are looking at something that is quite global. Here we have a myelograph. 
And here we have a horse that's malformed. This is an Irish sport horse. You can see the compression here between five and six. So this is a C6 and C7. And we can see the compression here at C7 in an eight-year-old Irish sport horse. So you can see that it's not just the brachial plexus we're concerned about, we're also concerned about the vertebral canal. And this is some of the work that Deruan did there in America, which was brilliant. Um, they believe that there could be some vertebral canal variations. And Bacati this year, in just a couple of months ago, put out a paper whereby they confirmed and gratefully cited the work that I published in the three papers and noted not only the variations, but also potential spinal canal compression. So it's just not one area we're concerned about. Having shown you the CT on this, yeah. you won't see that on the lateral. We didn't see that on the lateral radiograph. We saw it under CT. Right. Wow. So when we're looking at the brachial plexus, what nerves do they govern? Like, I mean, like what nerves govern where? The brachial plexus is a sensory and motor. So it comprises of C6, C7, C8. So don't worry, Sharon hasn't miscounted the cervical vertebra. It's just the number of the nose. So you exit. Oh, okay. okay. It does look bad, doesn't it? Sharon, yeah. what do you think? No, no, Sharon, it's, it's the number of nerves. So the cervical six, seven, and eight, and T1 and T2 are involved in the brachial plexus, which governs sensory and motor um, movement and sensory in the forelimb. See that? So musculocutaneous is six, seven, and eight. So here's musculocutaneous. Remember what I said about horses can have paratheses where they're itchy, where they can actually stop and scratch an area of the forelimb for no reason or stamp it. We believe that this may be involved. And I mean, as I said, this is not published or anecdotal yet that the median nerve eight and one, so that's C8 and T1, you can see the median nerve goes down to the foot. The radial nerve is C7, C8, T1, and sometimes T2. You can see the radial nerve coming down to here and the ulnar nerve eight and T1 and possibly two going down. So the, the limb is governed by the brachial plexus. Right. I've just shown you so many variations of the nerves, including the brachial um, not just the brachial plexus, but the phrenic nerve, which is, of course, going to be of concern to anybody that has racehorses uh, for the heart and lung. So differentials. We can have an enlarged facet joint, and it can create compression of the brachial plexus. We can have a fracture of C6, C5, C6, and or C7. We can have severe muscular strain, which can put compression on the neurologic, and caudal cervical osteoarthritis as above which you can see. Nerve root compression is caused by all of the above. So just governing off the nerves themselves is not going to do it. What will help you is this radiograph that you can see of C6. And here you can see the osteoarthritis here. Yep. As an adjunct, of course, I've been chasing caudal cervical and caudal neck research now for oh, over 20 years. And the current disappearing lamella has been of great concern to me. I've looked at between 1,500 and 2,000 caudal cervical vertebra in museum, natural history museums in America, in um, Sweden, UK, you, anywhere I can look at vertebra in natural history museums of pre-domesticated horse, I look at them. And so in that, I've looked at around 1,500 to 2,000. And I've seen, or have I seen, ECVM? What's your answer to that? 
uh, in these domesticated horses. No. All of those specimens that I've looked at. Because it wouldn't survive. You would be totally right. Yep. All of these specimens, and I, as I said, I've looked at them, Sweden, Germany, UK, America, I've not seen a malformation once. Now, after all of these, I've dissected between, well, over 500 horses, and I'm seeing it at an alarming rate, and it's increasing as I dissect more horses per year. So in, 19, in 2019, I dissected 26 horses around the world. So that's one every two weeks. So I'm traveling, dissecting, looking jet lagged and moving on. In the same time, I'm researching, giving seminars and conferences and hoping that someone has a private collection of cervical vertebrae I can rush off or any vertebrae of anything so I can go and have a look at it. And I haven't seen one malformation in a pre-domesticated equus. It's very sad. I haven't seen it. I've done a, few, a couple of Przewalskis, one zebra and three donkeys. So I've not seen it. You know that we have a national, um, it's a, the Smithsonian has their, their uh, animal research facility right here, like 15 minutes from me. You know, I would have been there in October, in November. Guess what stopped me? COVID. We could have actually met. (laughs) I'm actually planning if COVID behaves itself and the vaccines behave themselves, I will be there in November next year. Oh, okay. Well, I hope I am not in Australia next year, November, when you're here. Because, well, yeah, it's just up the road for me in Front Royal. And that, Well, the Natural History Museum at New York and in Florida, I hope genuinely to get there and look at these uh, pre-domesticated equids, whether they go all the way back to Dinohippus or whatever, just to get an idea of what we've lost in domestication. I'm not trying to bag us here. I'm trying to find an alternative to apply the science in a rehabilitation format because in, in all honesty, that little kid that's bent over and that little kid and the horses still wants to love them and pat them and feed them and keep them and keep them healthy and whole. So that's still the, the paramount of my mind, rehabilitation. What can I do if we've lost it, if we've lost it, the new ligament lamellar on C6 and 7 and losing it on C5, what can I do in my research process to find an applicable and um, no, time-effective method to support the caudal cervical um, vertebra without the osteoarthritis? That's my main goal at the moment. Wow. And this is part of it. And how, so, how, how much correlation do you have with the, the nuchal ligament issues with the ACVM, ECVM? None. There's no correlation. It's two different, two different issues completely. If I was to say to you that of all those horses I've dissected, 99% have the, have the loss of nucleoligamate lamella on C6 and C7. They are only going from C2 to C5. I could say that categorically, and I've been writing that in the literature and producing literature according to that information. It's sad, 99%, which means we are leaving the caudal cervical vertebra prone to um, potentially hypermobility due right. to lack of support. Yeah. So that's, um, I'm working on that. I actually, I've written a lot on it and I've got a lot of... Uh, well, I'd have to have you come back and talk about that, <laughs> if you are willing. <laughs> it's actually why variable feeding positions became such an issue for me because through variable feeding positions, I can recruit musculature to stabilize the caudal cervical vertebra in the lack of nucleoligamate lamella um, support. So I've been working on that method 
which is another complete journal. So that, that's, that's a complete different journey, but it's also still associated with the caudal cervical because when you think of it, where do we go next? Consider a clinical trial observing. Now, this is old news because I'm going to introduce you to someone. 30 plus diagnosed ECVM horses for over one year or as long as humanely possible. Then in 2019, I said, watch this space. That's what I did over 12 months ago. Because this lovely lady, Dr. Christine G, a veterinarian in Australia, is taking up the helm and doing her PhD on ECVM or these variations in, in domestic horses. And she is working on clinical findings. She wrote this paper, which is the first uh, radiographic technique to morphologically identify the caudal in the caudal cervical vertebra this malformation. Oh. Yeah, it's great. And I, well, outside of the fact she cited my papers, I mentor this lovely lady, and hopefully she will be travelling with me over the next couple of years, uh, so she can take over my role of dissecting horses around the world. She's younger, she's fitter. I think she's better looking, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Uh, when you get your arm upside down, uh, uh. you just got to have people that follow. And there are so many. Sophonia Vermoulen, who I showed you earlier, is doing a brilliant job with equine studies in Europe and bringing it to um, everybody's attention. But they published that this year in an open access paper on how to radiograph for the malformation. Awesome. So in their instance, they called it equine caudal cervical morphological um, variations. Now, the reason they did that was because they can only radiograph the two final cervical vertebras, where I'm presenting through dissection a more complex picture. Right. And this is how they found it. So they are able to access. She'll tell you differently. She said we worked it out together, but the lady's brilliant. Um, she has degenerated at this angle with the plate here, and you can see from left and right sides the caudal ventral tubercle of C6. Once that's been ascertained, they know whether they need to investigate further into C7 or into the sternal ribs. This is more of her work. As I said, it is open access. Christine, unfortunately, had a horse with this malformation. She, as a veterinarian, put it through all the um, proprioception tests and found it clear. Within 10 months, it was proprioceptively unsound. And that's what started her journey. Because if horses with an altered lower cervical biomechanics are more prone to degenerative changes and pain, as, is, as suggested by Rombach, then the progression of the syndrome over time may well be relevant. And this is a veterinarian working on this clinical findings. So this implications for both horse welfare and rider safety, as horses affected by this condition have been shown to exhibit lameness, pain-based behaviours, and failure to perform to expectation. Again, it's in this paper. And as I said, this paper is free. So they put it, they published it with the University of New England and CSIRO, which I mentioned earlier. Um, it's available online. And there, if anyone wants to double check that, I'll just give it another plug there. Awesome. Go for it online. You'll see it come up. Well, if the, the ability to, to do radiographs to see that in a live horse is so important because mm. you know if you see an indication with a radiograph then of course you if you have the money you go on to the ct scan but you, mm. you having something more simple that can fit with the pattern and then give you an idea right that's right and here are some more ct scans that she's been able to run through to find 
malformation of the vertebral canal. So it's just not one area. It's complex. And this vertebral canal, as Duron suggested, could be an issue. But as Bucati showed in the recent paper, is an issue. So where to now? Well, outside of the fact that she's working out how to the radiographic side, she's going to work out these other areas of whether it's going to influence the vertebral canal. And hopefully, looking at all of these CTs and work that she's doing on, we won't have to ride horses like this, that end up like this. Now, my question to you is, I'm so sorry that, that it's going to look like it's a horse twitching at flies when it isn't. There are no flies here. It's not fly-based. What you're looking at is a horse that's to be dissected and I'm observing it. And unfortunately, um, as with all things, this is a stallion of 23 years of age. Guess what he's been doing? Uh, Look at that front leg, deviate. Uh, yeah. So I want you to pick the good leg. It's a little hard because as, as I said, the video is a little bit choppy but I will see if I can do that. I do appreciate your patience with that. Yeah. But yeah, and it's having... the only thing about Zoom, and I did a presentation for Raquel the other day, and it was the same problem, and it's like it's frustrating because you're trying to talk about something and show something, and it's not clear. So, um, so as he comes it. around again, let me give you another moment. <laughs> yeah, so here it's kicking. Yep. So that's relevant because the mare that was bilateral that I showed you in the video was also kicking and flicking her tail. Here becomes very significant. Watch as he comes around the corner and he thinks he sees something. And oh, yeah. goes slightly. Watch what happens to the limb as he does it. There. He abducts and then deviates medial. Okay. This limb is the side of the malformation. The left side malformation of C6 and C7 and the first rib on this horse. Well, you are making me think about more and more horses. Unfortunately, it makes you think about more horses, which is really sad. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm showing something that is unfortunately at such a high level. As I said, I dissected to you earlier. I've dissected six out of ten of these horses in Japan. And again, we're looking at shuttle stallions and predominantly two um, he just toe stubbed and he just went to stumble on that left front. Yeah. Again, no flies. So where do we go from here? Ooh. Shakespeare said, what's in a name? I'm not worried about what we call it. What I do need to, to bring across is that it's this multifactorial problem that's heritable condition and it's located in the cervicothoracic junction. It can limit a horse's ability, athletic ability, and or its quality of life. And this is from that paper of Christine's. But just remember, this is a journey, not about confrontation, but education. This is where we need to go. We need to research this condition. And as we said earlier, we need to consider this as a genetic, a potential genetic component. And that's not my area. I'm a little bit long in the tooth to try and pick up genetics. I did do it at the University of Guelph on the online course. And it is a fascinating subject. But I think younger and brighter minds can handle this. And having a sample base here in Australia, now I mentioned Christine, think about that number has doubled that she's studying. Now, that's in her practice as a veterinarian. 
that's really scary for a veterinarian to have nearly 60 horses in her practice, at least over 50, in her practice in the area that she practices in. That's a great concern. Yeah. Because one of the things that's a differential is caudal cervical arthritis. So every time that she has been suspect of the condition, it's been predominantly a large percentage has been accurate in her diagnosis and workup. And the other percentage has been a differential, such as a caudal cervical osteoarthritis or a broken facet of C6, C7, or even C5, other things that have caused the problem. However, there has been a problem and it elicits similar symptoms to that um, Christine's witnessing. So hopefully we'll get some more papers coming through from Christine from a clinical perspective of a longitudinal study of live horses with this condition. Remembering having, uh, she had one, she rode one, she found it randomly dangerous in the end, towards the end of his life, which was less than 12 months that she owned him. By the time we find this condition in horses, we seem to see it especially um, change. It changes predominantly after the age of five, after the growth plates start to close and become more fused. That's when we predominantly see it. And in Christine's words, the thoroughbreds or those with heavy thoroughbred influence seem to be more reactive in the condition in her practice than those that are of warm blood direct derivative or warm bloods because she said their personality appears to be of a more amiable and acceptable status rather than thoroughbreds that are more reactive yeah so yeah that would make sense yeah and it makes sense but when you have a horse for an example that you've just second mortgaged your house for and imported the stallion and found that as you go fei that he starts to rear and bite his shoulder as you ask for higher collection and bite um, high collection and frame to go into the more difficult dressage maneuvers at FEI level. And as I said, a second mortgage on your house to bring a stallion and purchase it into Australia that you have to geld because this has just been found out. It's devastating at various levels. And as one lady contacted me from overseas, which has occurred in, in a different scenario, she said her business is in trouble and as is her marriage. So, this so, affects you. so then uh, would you, would you make the recommendation that if you're going to spend a lot of money on a, on what you would think of as an upper level performance course, that you would absolutely spend the money on the, on the cervical x-rays and then even the C, how much, I don't even know how much a CT scan is. I would go with what DeRuin recommended and that would be the radiograph of C6 in his retrospective study in 2016 out of UC Davis. I certainly would follow that recommendation as I would Christine G's and have it as he recommended it as the standard pre-purchase radiograph. Yeah. He suggested that. He didn't outright say it. He suggested that Christine G won't purchase ever again or recommend a client to purchase a horse without it having been caught as a veterinarian with a horse that was safe and sound on the day, she said, I didn't even think, it didn't even come to my mind that I needed to radiograph his caudal neck. And she said, as he got older in that, within that 12 month span, bang, it really came to the fore. Um, somebody's a CT, oh, a CT scan at, um, at EMC in Leesburg is only $750. When you're looking at spending $100,000 on a horse, $750 is a drop in the bucket for pre-purchase to avoid and you know. it gives you a bit of view, especially if you can get a veterinarian that is really um, apt at ultrasounding the neck. They might be able to pick up the nerves. 
So we have two other questions here, one of which was came in early, but I kind of held it back. Um, I'll ask the second one first. So if you have a no horse now with a C6, C7 malformation, what do you suggest to keep them as sound and pain-free as possible? You see, one of the veterinarian orthopedic surgeons asked me in America, Sharon, he said, we can stabilize this by putting in a brace. And so this is not a, it's giving you an idea. And I said, but what happens when you start to go in the surgical procedure and you've got the radiographs there to follow and you come across the nerves have relocated? What if the nerves aren't where you think they are? What if the musculature is not where you think it is? What if the, the malformation is pressing on the recurrent laryngeal nerve? What if the malformation is pressing on the trachea? I went, what you're saying is that we're not going to see that until we get in there. I said, we're not going to see it until we've got the diagnostic equipment to A, isolate the musculature and its variations and B, isolate the neurological pathways. And it's so, because you might, might get in there and find a scalene has bifurcated and you have to release nerves as well and then reattach the scalene to the, to the first rib. Morphologically, I like Christine's words. <clears throat> she said, Sharon, with your research on this and the disappearing lamella, she said, it's created a perfect storm. There's no stability of the nucleoligament lamella supporting the cervical vertebra. And she said, there's no stability if we can't rehabilitate these horses, but we don't know how to rehabilitate these horses because we don't know the full ramifications of the malformation. It's that complex. And so without knowing precisely what's involved in each individual horse, we can't predict that every symptom is going to be there. There could be one, there could be two, there could be the whole gamut. And you could be on a safari looking for it when you're looking into the diagnostics aspect. So it's just, I'm mortified. And, and it makes me a little bit emotional because I'm mortified that I can't give an answer. If you have a horse that has this malformation, what you will see is what I showed you. May I go back? Yeah. Thank you here quickly. May I go back? Oh, <laughs> you, you did go back quite far. <laughs> it just unshared your screen. You just have to reshare it. Yeah, I'm trying. Uh, it's it's Don't get fuzzy that. when you try to like move around on your screen. It gets fuzzy. Well, go. I'm going to show that the answer to that question. You know your horse the best. You know that your horse is when it's uncomfortable. And when it's comfortable, whenever I've gone out and I've been assessing horses and working horses as a therapist, when I had the practice going up until um, 2012, I looked here. Pain face and all of that was well known to therapists and what we recognised. You can tell from this horse he's worried and he's five. So to answer that question, you know your horse best. When you see their quality of life start to diminish and they're becoming more worried or more changes are occurring in their body, then that's the time to consider. As in one month, an Oldenburger in Holland, within one month, out of the blue, he started to really change dramatically. He became aggressive in the paddock and he lost the musculature over the left scapula, which is indicative of Sweeney. So that meant the suprascapular nerve was compromised and he had the malformation and she was trying to rehabilitate him and work with him. But unfortunately, just recently, uh, she had to put him down. And again, he was a horse that was happy and comfortable in the paddock until the random behaviour appeared, the aggressive behaviour appeared, and the atrophy appeared. So you as the owner, 
other one that's going to be watching this kind of variation in a horse and you make that choice when you see these changes potentially um, are, are an issue. As again, he was on the table at five, but you can see he's worried and he was put down with navicular syndrome. But see, this is where if, if, if people in pre-purchase start demanding these cervical x-rays, we can actually by our vote, by our examination and our vote of not buying horses to start getting these breeders to pay attention and start looking into, you know, there's clearly, as you've shown, a genetic component. And the only way we're going to get breeders to change is when we don't buy their horses. And the other thing too is uh, with equine studies recently, we had a couple of webinars and Zooms and one breeder come on board uh, out of Europe and he said he had he, 11 of his horses evaluated prior to coming on board to talk about it as a breeder. And um, he was mortified. Four of his breeding stallions had it. Oh. Out of 11. He said, I've just lost one third virtually of my stallion herd. And he had a, like a breeding station. So that was very brave of him to come forward. Very. So, and, and not too many people are willing to do that, for sure, because... It, you know, I mean, and that's the thing, it's all tied to their livelihood. Mm. Uh, but if we are going to have any chance of reducing or eliminating this, what I see as a genetic defect, um, that's the only, oh, my battery's about to die. That's the only way we can solve that. So I have one more question, and then my battery's really low, and I don't have my charger handy. Um, someone has an Andalusian Pertrine cross bred in Canada. Two years ago, he was diagnosed with facet disease arthritis in C4, C6, using ultrasound to diagnose. He also had negative reaction to girth and even a towel on his chest after blah, blah, blah. Could these be symptoms is what she's asking. Yes, yes. but they should have been able to pick up the, the variation in the radiographs. Yeah. So, so what we do is reevaluate, retrospectively reevaluate those radiographs and see if the malformation is there. Yeah. Having said that, remember that the differentials are that facet, caudal facet arthritis. And again, remembering that these nerves go down and influence that forelimb. So these are some of the differentials that we will look for in a horse before we radiograph. But you know, you're very wise to get that area radiographed. And I do believe with caudal facet osteoarthritis, they can inject a cortisone a corticosteroid or something to that effect, whereby you can stabilize it and um, help the horse to have a normal life and pain-free life in that region. So Sharon, this has been fascinating. I hate to cut it short because I'm watching my battery about to die um, um, and I don't have my <laughs> charger handy. But anyway, thank you so much for this webinar. This has been so informative and I'm, I so appreciate your knowledge and information and willing to share with us. Um, it's fabulous. One more thing just for the American folks that are here in the audience. Uh, while in America, not so long ago, before COVID, so pre-COVID America, I was speaking to one stud owner who had imported all her semen from a very good lines in the Europe. 50% of her stud were infected. Okay, that's a passing comment and it's anecdotal. And of course, I'm not going to divulge any information. Just be mindful. Right. Look at the back lines. Look for the thoroughbreds. Look for the Arabs. We can go all the way back to Eclipse as having the malformation. Polymelis had the malformation. We can go back that far because we've looked at the skeletons. Wow. So just, you'll see poly, and of course, you, when you look at those lines, you'll see some very famous thoroughbred lines. So just be mindful, folks, that a lot of this has appeared predominantly in the last 100 years as a result of a genetic bottleneck. And that's um, where we can just look at those bloodlines. Get it radiographed before you come and buy yeah, the horse. Yeah, get it radiographed. That's, um... 
Someone wanted to know if you could expect parath parathesis in the hind limbs. Don't know if Bionary's going to survive. We've seen ataxia in the hind limbs because of the compression in the vertebral canal. And we suspect that the correlation is between the compression of the vertebral canal because the long nerves that govern the hind limbs are, are located on the outside of the spinal cord. And there could be that compression that could be influencing them. So parasthesis in the hind, I couldn't guarantee that I can offer that. I can only offer it in the forelimbs. Okay. All right, Sharon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end here. And thank you so much. And I'll be in touch. Really right, appreciate you. it. Thanks. All the best. Bye, Bye. folks.